Hey, I want to extend a very warm welcome to you tonight, and uh, thank you for coming out on this Friday evening, and I want to especially welcome those that have come from different churches. Uh, welcome. Thank you for coming here tonight. I know you're going to be blessed. And uh, how many people are here? You, this is your first time hearing Pastor Shane. Just lift up your hand. Oh, look, there's some new ones. It's fantastic. You are going to absolutely love him. Shane has been coming here for about 100 years and um, <laughs> comes here every year, and he's just fantastic. And his, it means we like him. And uh, we, we, do actually, we do love Shane. He is part of our family. And... Um, and we, our, our lives and our church have just been totally transformed by his ministry for me personally. And I know many people hear your, th- your way of thinking, your understanding about God, your heart has been transformed. And uh, we're incredibly grateful to have you here again. And uh, so without further ado, why don't we give Pastor Shane a great big warm welcome tonight. All right. Yay. Come on. Very good. You can be seated. It's so good to be with you again here at Bay City and um, in Hastings. And um, to all my friends from Bay City, it's so good to see you again. Thank you for being so hospitable. And, and I have been coming for many, many years, 14 to be exact, so 100. So it's very good. That means, that means you, guys, uh, you, you guys have always been nice to me, and I've been nice to you, and we have a good relationship. It's very good. And for those of you, from those of you from other churches around, I've, I've heard that Equippers is here. Uh, yeah, yeah, love Equippers. Come on! So I had such a good time with you guys at Shout and um, and at the uh, at the at the women's conference. I equip her, and um, and I'm glad that you guys are here. Please uh, make yourself at home. These are great people here, and um, and we're all in one body. Now, here's what I love about here's what I love about Friday night. Okay, it's Friday night. You're in church, which means I'm feeling zero pressure to be an evangelist, right? Right? And that's really good because let me let you know something. Don't tell anybody this. This is our secret. I'm not a good evangelist. Okay. But I am a good teacher. And so what I want to do is I want to focus on that. Because if you're in church on a Friday night, I want to give you something that I can't do on Sunday morning. Okay? I want to give you something a bit more meaty. I want to, um, I want to challenge thought. Great teaching is not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. Great teaching is meant to make us wrestle and meant to make us shift and change. And so, um, and so here's what's going to happen. One of two things is going to happen. I'll decide, uh, I'll decide midway. Either, either I'm going to teach till about... 7.40, and then we'll take about a 15-minute break, and then we'll come back, and I'll teach to about 8.30, or if I'm feeling it, I'll just go straight through, and we'll end about 10 after 8, and then, um, and, and then you have from 10, 8, 10 to 8.30 to, to look around and, and fellowship and that kind of thing. We do, have our, um, we do have our resource table back there. Everything's available in four formats, CDs, DVDs, USBs, and direct downloads. Um, 100% of everything we ever make from that table, we give to the poor and the afflicted. Uh, we have orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. Um, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town flats. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's really good. Now, if, if you, every single package now has its own individual USB inside it. So no matter what you buy, you get it in all the formats, okay? And you're just helping us do that. Since last time I was here, I think we put out three or four brand new ones. Two, two are within the last month, and they'll be obvious. They're the ones with a big stack on them, so you can, you could, you can uh, pick those up back there. The only thing I would ask you to do is, um, is if you know you're going to get something tonight, if you, if you would try to do so in the break, uh, that, that, that'll, be, that'll be good so that the volunteers aren't here exceptionally late. Like, so let's, let's treat them how we would want to be treated. All right, so 
I want to talk to you tonight about culture. I want to talk to you tonight about what it means to be a leader in the body of Christ in our, in our city. And, and I specifically, because it's Friday night and you're in church, I'm assuming I'm talking to fully devoted followers of Jesus, right? And so I, I want to talk to you about how to get the most out of Scripture, how to, how to approach the Bible um, in a way that we can get the most out of it, and specifically then, when we communicate Scripture. So if, you ever, if you're a communicator of truth in any way, from a stage, you're going to find this very helpful. And if you're a communicator of these truths over coffee, like you're just a relational person who your conversations about God or the Bible almost 100% exist around a kitchen table or around a living room in a circle, you're also going to find this very helpful. And it's going to help your, your personal walk as well. So this tonight will have an individual application. It will also have a systemic application, and it will have a relational application. So we're going to cover, we're, we're going to have a, we're going to cover quite a bit. And so, and so what I'm finding is, as I'm traveling the world, I'm not saying it's true everywhere, but I'm saying it's true enough that it will be relevant. What, what I'm finding is, is that particularly parents with children under 30, so they're, they're in that, they're that 20 to 30 year old range, and they're starting to really ask questions. What I'm finding is, is that the parents are telling me that they find the Bible boring. Okay, that they just find it boring, and, and it's, it's just inconsistent. It's like, oh, do we really actually still believe that? Like, is it really okay to do this? Like, why would God have ever said that? And so I want, I want to deal with that. I want to deal with that. I want, I want to deal with it because um, I've given my life to communicating Scripture in, in interesting, entertaining, and meaningful ways, all right? And so, and so I don't want to see that happen with our young people, but it could be very frustrating, and maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe you secretly are like, like you read something and you're like, man, or, or you, you hear a sermon that's technically correct, but you're just at the end of it so bored, right? And, and, and what are we doing this and how can we address this in a more compelling way? So let, let's dig into this a little bit. And let's talk about the nature of truth for a second, okay? So let's talk about the, the, so if you could bring that first slide up for me, the nature of truth, all right? So truth exists in a Trinitarian structure. Now let me explain what I mean by that. It's three legs, all right? And if you remove any of those three legs, this is so important, it's not less truthful. It's just less meaningful, okay? For truth to have the most umph and the most meaning, we need to discipline ourselves when we approach the Bible individually or systemically or relationally that we discipline ourselves to address and seek out all three legs, okay? So let me explain all three legs, and I'm not going to rush through it because there's no need to, all right? So the first leg is the literal or the objective. The literal is something happened. Somebody wrote something down. Somebody told a story. You're reading something that happened in the book of Nehemiah. Or in the book of Mark. And something happened. Or you're reading one of Paul's letters and he feels the need to say something to this group of people. That is the literal. Now, this is very important. Sometimes the literal is fiction. Let, let, let me explain what I mean by that. If I was to take you to Israel and we were to ask the history expert, excuse me, can you take me to the farm where the parable of the prodigal son actually happened? Right? Well, the guy wouldn't even know what to say. He would say, what are you talking about? That was a made-up story. That is a fictional story to make a point. Yes, but in this, in this sense, it's literal. It's literal in the sense that Jesus told the story, right? And because Jesus told the story, we should take that story very seriously. Now, 
Here's the problem with the literal nature of truth. If you get stuck in only the literal, you're automatically stuck in boringness. Even if you're right. Because here's the thing, right? If you only address the literal, it's not less truthful. It's not. It's just less meaningful, right? Let, let, let's, 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 let me pick a topic that, all, that would unite us all. The resurrection of the risen Christ, right? We affirm that Jesus rose from the dead, right? And no matter what church you came from, you would affirm that truth. So we would all agree with that. But what if somebody got so focused on the literal nature of resurrection that they wrote a 157-page thesis proving that Jesus literally rose from the dead. And let's say they did it really well and really complete. And let's say they, they, they did it so well, it would even be legally compelling. Let's say they do it outstanding. And you would agree with him. Like if I said, do you agree with this 157-page thesis? Your answer would be, yes, he's telling the truth. But how many pages would you get through it before you're bored? Two? Maybe on a good day? Right? Why? Because if you're only addressing the literal without any exploration of the other two, it's not less truthful, it's just less meaningful. We all know that the power of resurrection is not in exploring the literalness of it. If that's the case, why not just worship Lazarus? I mean, he rose first, right? But there's no such thing as a Lazarite. Right? Or a Lazarine. Where do you guys go to church? We go to the church of the Lazarines. He resurrected too. No. The, the power of resurrection is not in the fact that it literally happened. Although we embrace that. It's in the infinite explorations of the meaning of it. Right? You can't just get stuck on the literal and, and expect people not to be bored. Like, so what? Okay. Somebody says, I can prove that Genesis 1 is literally true from a microbiological cellular level. Okay. Right? The question is, is, is what do we do with that? I can prove there was actually a Noah's Ark and they found it somewhere. All righty. Right? The question is, is what do we do with all of that? The power of resurrection is not in the literalness of it, although we embrace it. It's in the infinite explorations of the meaning of it. Like, death doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Like, if you were wrong about death, what else could you be wrong about? Like, my goodness, if not even death is a sure thing, maybe we should open more conversations instead of closing them. Like, new life can burst forth in the middle of this one. Like, you never know what God might introduce to your tomorrow that will change everything. Your tomorrow is not simply a repeat of your yesterday because resurrection power is at work in our world. Like, we could get fresh starts, second chances, do-overs, clean slates, and, 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 and fresh stories. We could do that. See now, we're, see, now it's like, oh, oh, well, that's better. Why? Because if we only focus on the literal, it's not less truthful. It's just less meaningful. And as someone who, who wants to glean individually from God's word, and then hopefully you want to take what you glean and introduce that into your relationships, as someone who's communicating it from a stage or over a cup of coffee, if you only focus on the literal, the people you're communicating it to are going to find you boring even if you're telling the truth. 
There's a far more compelling way to talk about this. So the first is the literal. That's the first element of truth. The second one is the meaning or the symbolic, right? So what does this mean for our world? Like if someone said to me, hey, guess what? I've proven that Genesis 1 is true at a microbiological cellular level literally. I would go, okay, now what? And if that person said, you know what that means? That means that there was a creative power before the foundation of the world that organized chaos into beautiful new life. And what would happen if we reconnected people today with that same creative power that was at creation, rose Jesus from the dead, and we told them that they can connect to that same creative power, and if it enters into their life of chaos, beauty and order and new life and energy can come in and invade their world, giving them a world of infinite possibilities. What if that's the case? I'd be like, oh, yes. But I don't want to hear about those cellular stuff, right? Although it's grounded in something. Like if someone said, hey, I can prove Noah's ark was actually literal. Amen. Okay. So what? And they say, you know what that means? That means that we live in a world of open possibilities, not closed ones. And we can celebrate that God can do what he likes despite our, our lack of ability to understand it all. And if we applied that to our life, our life would be infinitely more exciting. <laughs> well, now I'm in, right? Proving something literally is boring unless we explain and explore the meanings of that thing, whether it's the cross or the resurrection or the Jonah story or the Nehemiah story or Paul's letters, we don't want to just focus on believing the right things. We want to focus on how that then affects our whole world. Let, let, me, let me explain, because all the power of truth is in the meaning, not in the literalness. Let me explain. If we walked out here tonight and there was a sober person, not a drunk person, drunk person you understand. But let's say there was a sober person in the parking lot using the toilet on a New Zealand flag. So they had a New Zealand flag, and they're going to the toilet on the New Zealand flag. Now, for most of us, that would be, forget the fact they're using the toilet in public, put that aside. The fact that they're going to the toilet on the flag, that would irritate most of us, correct? Why? It's just thread and cloth. Why would it bother you that someone went to the toilet on a piece of cloth with thread? Because that's all a flag is, literally. But you know and I know the power of the flag is not in the exploration of the literal, but actually everything that flag stands for symbolically. That's where the power is. Let me see if I illustrate it another way. Let me illustrate it with a baby, okay? Yes. Let's say that there's a woman about to give birth. And she goes to wherever you give birth in Napier Hastings. And she's in the birthing room doing birthing things. Right? Right? I've never seen this, obviously, but it's fun. Yeah. And let's say, let's say she goes to give birth. And that baby, here comes the baby, here it comes, right? right? And the doctors do whatever they do to the baby. You know, they check its vitals, make sure there's nothing in its mouth, all the things the doctors do. Then they wrap the baby up, hand it to the mouth. At some point, then they take this brand new baby girl and they hand it to the father. And the father is overwhelmed with emotion. 
the father's just overcome holding his new baby girl. And he's holding this baby girl and he's so moved. He says, oh, wow. This is the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. Now, what if someone was in the delivery room who's like, say, Sheldon Cooper, right? (laughs) And Sheldon Cooper's like, really? You're not a lover of truth. Actually, actually, prove that literally. Because actually, there's going to be a lot of girls that are uglier than her. And there's going to be a lot of girls that are prettier than her. If you were actually a truth teller, you would have said, Oh, this is the most average girl in the whole wide world. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Well, if somebody did that, you wouldn't even know what to say. You'd be like, I'm not speaking literally. This... This baby has redefined beauty. This baby, this baby is not being judged against other people for their beauty. This, this person has redefined beauty. So let's say that there's two women giving birth. And because of overcrowding, they end up in the same delivery room in the Napier Hospital. And they're both together doing whatever they do to give birth. And then, there it comes. And at the exact same millisecond, they hand the baby to the mom. And at the exact same millisecond, they hand the baby to the father. And at the exact same millisecond, both fathers say, oh, wow. This is the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. Are these two people in conflict? No, they're speaking at a meaning level. Which is why you're so bored when you hear atheists and Christians debating. You're so bored. What, if you enjoy YouTube debates between atheists and Christians, I think the, philo- the philosophical term for it is get a life, okay? Because that is boring. Why? Because both of them are arguing at a literal only level. They're arguing at only one level, and both people, both are so boring. This is why, I'll get to this in a second. Okay, so, so there's one thing to affirm the literal nature of new life. It's a whole other thing for it to mean more than anything in the whole world to you. That is a whole different thing. But then, let's say you're going home from the delivery room. And on your way home, your neighbor eight doors down has balloons in the front yard with a poster. Welcome to the world, Billy. And there's blue balloons. Now, you would make an assumption that the woman in that house has had a baby. And his name is... Billy, and you would fully believe and affirm in the literal nature of that new life without it meaning anything to you. But your baby, you fully affirm the literal nature of that new life, and it means everything to you. All the power of pursuing truth is not improving the literalness of it, although we affirm that. The literalness grounds it in something, but all the power is in the infinite explorations of the meaning and what we're going to do tomorrow to change our world based on being inspired by what these people's stories are. And now we're starting to get to something. Because if you have one without the other, if you have literal with no meaning, you're boring. If you have meaning that's not grounded in something objective, you're getting flighty. It's, it's like, wh- wh- why, where'd you come up with that? Well, it just seemed good to me, right? 
But then the third level of truth is the eventual nature of truth. The eventual nature of truth is a deeper level of truth. It's this. Let's take the cross and resurrection for a second. And this is why we, we got to shift this. That if the church, if Christianity is all about a group of people who simply believe in the cross and resurrection, you can't be surprised when people think that's boring, right? Because is Christianity actually about getting all the right thoughts in our head? I hope not. Because that would be, that would be boring, right? It's, it's not about, like, I'll say it this way. If you don't believe in the cross and resurrection, I would urge you to believe that. But on Friday night in church, I'm assuming I'm talking to a room that's past that. And we got to have an answer for what's past that. Because the cross and resurrection should not simply be something we believe in. But it should be something that moves us to explore all the meanings of that to the point where it's eventual. Eventual means, eventual doesn't mean we believe something happened. Eventual means that we believe something happened. And that happening has now fundamentally shifted the way we see our whole world, right? It's one thing to believe in the cross and resurrection. It's a whole other thing to see the whole world differently because of that event. Now, when you explore scripture through all three, now you have something compelling. But if you remove any of those three... It's not less truthful. It's not. It's just less meaningful. And what we want is we want to get the most ump out of how we communicate the Bible, Scripture, Revelation, how we communicate community. How we do that in our world matters. In the first century, check this out. You can imagine this. In the first century, it was illegal to be a Christian. Right? If you got caught being a Christian, you were executed. And this is true. The charge that they executed you for was atheism. True. First century Christians were called atheists. Here's why. They did not practice Judaism. So when Rome said, if a Roman authority said, do you practice Judaism? They would say, no. We think God is much bigger, wider, broader than that. So you don't practice Judaism. No. Do you affirm Roman gods? No. So you don't practice Judaism? No. And you don't affirm Roman gods? No. That makes you atheists. And atheists are very dangerous to culture in a world where we profiteer greatly on people's spiritual guilt by getting them to pay for religious rituals to get their soul cleansed. And if you remove that, if you start preaching about a God that loves people just because outside of ritual, that's going to take a lot of money out of our pockets. So we're going to kill you for the charge of atheism, right? And here's the reason, here's the re, here's the reason that's so important, right? Is because Christians in the first century stood on a platform that said, if you think you've got your head around God, you're wrong. It is much bigger than that. It is much bigger than the literal. It's all found in, in the meaning and the eventual nature. Because here's the thing. In the first century, you couldn't tell people you were Christian. You couldn't. Here's how you had to tell they were Christian. By how they lived. Could you imagine a world like that? Where people were forced to demonstrate the eventual nature of their faith without being able to announce it. And you had to tell who was a follower of Christ by how they treated one another, how they cared for the poor, how they actually lived. Could you imagine a world where we weren't allowed to announce what we believed before we demonstrated it? Woo! 
could you imagine a place like that, right? So, because here's the thing. Woman has a baby. <laughs> oh, the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. On your way home, neighbor seven doors down. Welcome to the world, Billy, right? But you get home, and your social, your social interaction of choice is dart-throwing. So the first night back, you go to your dart club, you throw darts, you drink a pint, right? Nothing harmful, just throw darts, one pint, right? Next night, throw darts, one pint. Third night, throw darts, one pint. Fourth night, throw darts, one pint. You come home and your wife says, excuse me, we have a baby now. And you say, I know, I know. And I fully believe and affirm in the literal nature of that baby. <laughs> and I affirm it means the whole world to me. But until that new life has fundamentally shifted the way you see your whole world, it's not less truthful. It's just less meaningful. Christianity could be much more compelling because here's my fear. For a lot of Christianity, Christianity is filled with people who believe in God. We affirm Jesus in the cross. And then there's even some people who affirm it, and it means everything to them. They got the fish on the car, the cross around their neck. They can't wait to go to heaven, you know. <laughs> but but until that truth has fundamentally invaded how we see our whole world, it's not less truthful. It's not. It's just less meaningful. There's a better way to engage Scripture individually, corporately, and relationally. Let, let's say it another way. Next slide. <laughs> so the nature of being. Scripture affirms oneness without an expectation on sameness. There's a fundamental difference between oneness... And sameness. Scripture affirms oneness. And actually, I think Scripture affirms oneness better than we do. I think Scripture affirms oneness so revolutionarily that it still is confrontational to us today. Like, I'll give you a couple examples. Paul was trying to describe a place where Christ isn't. And he finally throws up his hands and he goes, Actually, no. All things were created by him and for him. And in him all things hold together. For the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. Woo, that is radical. In, in other words, where, is, where in this world right now is Christ not? So any talk about, oh, these people have Christ and these people don't. What are you talking about? They're not held together by God's name. They're not in God's world. God's breath isn't holding them together. What are you talking about? Paul insisted that Christ was all and is in all things. So if you see someone and can't see Christ, it's you. <laughs> you need to change your seeing, right? That in that sense, the philosophical word for this is God is the ground of being. The ground of being is that if it's alive, God is holding it together. That if, 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 if somebody is breathing or if, it, if it's in creation and it's alive, it's only Christ that's holding it together. Without Christ, the whole thing dissolves very quickly, right? This is a very scriptural idea. Now, here, here's why that's important because that's the literal. Somebody wrote that down, right? So let's practice. The meaning of that is, wait a minute. If there's only one God and God is holding it all together, that means 
that I can't purposely harm you because if there's only one God and God is holding me together and God is holding you together, if I purposely do harm to you, how could I expect not to harm myself in the process because it's the same spirit of God that's holding us all together, right? And here's why, that, here, here, here's why that's important, right? They've actually proved this literally. This is unbelievable. They have instruments now that can observe subatomic particles. Particles smaller than electrons, protons, and neutrons, okay? And here's what they've observed. That the atmosphere we carry can fundamentally change the molecular structure of water. They've observed this under microscopes in, in a molecular thing, right? Since we're made of 68% water, my atmosphere that I carry into your presence affects how you feel because it's literally changing the, the, the formation of the water in your body. This is why, have you ever been around somebody and they just give you an awful feeling, right? It's, it's, it's quite literally, it's that. But here's, and no one can explain this, it's just true, and I, I find it unbelievable, right? I find it, I find it awesome is what I mean. That if I'm close enough to you, right? So if I get close enough to your proximity, some of my particles jump into you. Did you feel that? And some of your subatomic particles jump into me. And here's the thing, right? If I'm purposely cruel to you and I harm you, here's the problem. When I leave, my subatomic particles jump back into me, wounded, because I've hurt him. We would call that sowing and reaping. That what, what I do to others somehow comes back to me. They've actually proven this scientifically. Now... What does that mean? It means that to really communicate truth in a compelling way, we have to commit to being kind. Like Paul said it this way, so what if you understand the mysteries of 17 heavens, literal, if you have not love, what is that? In other words, unless what you understand here has somehow journeyed to fundamentally seeing our world differently. See, the Bible affirms oneness, but it never expects sameness. You can't, you can't be intellectually honest and say that James and Paul agreed with one another. Impossible, nor should they have to. Paul and Peter definitely didn't. Paul's like, I confronted him to his face, you know? There are, some, there are certain people, Paul just said, I couldn't journey with them. But you can journey with them. Why? Because the kingdom of God being established requires a lot of oneness with no expectation of sameness. Part of the beauty of the salad is that we're all different. But when everybody that's different um, explores truth in the literal, the meaning, and the eventual nature, we get to something with a high level of meaning. So let's talk about, let's talk about the eventual nature for a second. Next slide. So there's belief versus imagination, right? Because here's the thing. All of us have a set of beliefs. We would call that doctrine. But let me tell you why that's almost not that's that's really not important. What's far more important than what you believe is how you believe what you believe. Right? So what's far more important, like if you believe that we should take care of the poor, but you never actually take care of the poor, that's a problem, right? So what's more important than what you believe? Like if you believe I should be kind to my parents, but then when you look at your life, you never call them, you never check on them, you never tell them you love them, then there's a gap between the what and the how. 
And the engine between the what and the how is the imagination. What's far more important than what you believe is how you imagine what you believing working out. That's far more important. Because your emotions will automatically attach to your imagination, not what you believe, right? Let, let, me, let me prove it. Let me explain what I mean, right? How many of you would believe with all your heart that you're forgiven by the finished work of the risen Christ? Yes. I even got a verbal, yeah. Amen. Now, and you know what? We would all affirm that. But here's the thing. It's possible to believe that you're forgiven, but then in your imagination, you see yourself guilty. And if you, if you believe you're forgiven, but you see yourself guilty, you will act guilty. That's the way it works, because your emotions will go around the imagination. If you have a 16-year-old, and she's supposed to be home at midnight, and it's 1.30, and no one's answering their phone, do your emotions tie to the, what really is happening or to the worst-case scenario in your imagination, right? Same. It's possible to have an orthodox doctrine but a pagan imagination, right? In other words, you can, you can believe correctly, but the way you picture it can be way off, right? Let me give you a great example. Trinity, right? Everyone in this room believes that God is not a singularity. Rather, God is a divine relationship between three that are acting so symbiotically that they appear as one. In the second century, they came up with a word for that. They called it Trinity. The Trinity, right? Earlier than the second century, they called it something more beautiful than Trinity. They called it the perichoresis. Perichoresis, perimeter, circle, choresis, choreograph, a circle dance. They called it a divine dance. And what they said is, if you want to understand God, God is a divine relationship between three that are so perfectly symbiotic that they know when to step up, when to step back, when to honor, when to submit, when to take their turn, when to give the other person their turn. Like somebody says to Jesus, Jesus, you're good. And Jesus is like, no, no one's good except the Father. But the Father exalts Jesus. But Jesus points to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit points back to them. See, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a divine. So, so all of us would believe that God is not a singularity, but God is a divine relationship between three. Here's the problem. I've asked this question all over the world, thousands of people, because I just got curious about it. I've asked this question all over the world. When you pray, what do you picture? So when you pray to God, what do you picture? I heard somebody say Jesus, right? That's actually the number two answer. Number one answer is, I picture a guy on a throne. Well, a single white dude on a throne is Zeus, <laughs> Apollo, Hermes, right? Like, it's, it's Mithra. Like, so, so the people who say they picture a guy on a throne, all of them would say they believe in the Trinity. But then they picture a singularity. Second answer is, I picture Jesus. Then you press them on that a little bit. You're like, which Jesus? Like Middle Eastern swarthy hippie Jesus, you know? <laughs> or like sweet smelling of lavender and doll soap, blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. <laughs> They're like, I don't know, like just Jesus, you know? Third answer is, I picture a father. You press that a little bit like, oh, great. What kind of father? I don't know. Just like a father, you know? Huh. So like an ambiguous father. Yes, right, because that'd be a great song, wouldn't it? You're an ambiguous father. It's who you are. So, right, right, right. So, now, here's the problem with all three of those. All three of those are singularities. 
So we believe that God is a divine relationship between three, but we picture one. We picture a singularity. That's, so we have an orthodox doctrine, but a pagan imagination, and expect not to be jacked up with our view of God. Are you kidding? Right? Like, here's the thing. Every noun, every verb, every pronoun in all of Genesis 1 describing God is all plural. Let us, plural, make man in our image. Plural, right? Even Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew it says, in the beginning God's created the heavens and the earth. It's in the beginning Elohim. That's plural. Plural. Everything there is plural. So let me ask you this. How many of you believe that God is three acting as one? All of us. But what if I replace the pronouns around God with the plural? What if I was, what if we, well, I won't do this, but what if we said, what if we said on Sunday, hey, isn't it good? Isn't it good that the presence of God, isn't it awesome that they are here? <laughs> well, that would be like, whoa, right? That would be confronting. But let me ask you a question. Is it confronting your doctrine? No, it's confronting your imagination of how that doctrine works out, right? So it's, it's very easy to believe that Jesus called us to live a life to take care of the poor and the afflicted. It's very easy to believe that. But if our imagination never comes under the obedience of that, it will never be an eventual sort of thing. What the world is looking for is not a group of people who have all the right thoughts in their head about God. They're looking for a group of people who are so moved by the truth that they infinitely explore the meanings, and then it fundamentally shifts the way they see their whole world. Ideally, if the people in Wellington decided to make it illegal for any Christian to say they're a Christian, so from now on, it is illegal for any Christian to say they're a Christian. Do you know how much the church would suffer? Should be none. Because the credibility of the church should never be on our announcement of doctrine, but rather the life we are bringing to our world. Right? It's one thing to have the values. It's a whole other thing to have the behavior. Now, let me apply this. By looking at something Jesus said. And if everybody's okay, I'm just going to continue on. Is anybody bored? No. Okay, good. All right, now, next slide. So, the, the question is, why am I here? Like, different religions and cultures have answers to this. Different people and biases, they all have different answers, right? Now, in the Jewish world, if you ask a Jew in Jesus' day, why am I here? Here was the Jewish answer. God has given us land in order to bless others. So God blessed us, and we're supposed to bless others. That was the Jewish answer for our purpose in life, is we take the resources God blessed us with, and we live a life to bless the whole world. That was the idea. There's a problem, though. The problem in Jesus' day was they didn't own their land. So if you believe that your purpose is to use your land to bless others, and you have no land, that is a problem. Now, Jesus starts addressing this with a phrase that was brand new in his day. Next slide. This is Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, if you weren't here last year, you won't know this, and even if you were, I wouldn't expect you to remember it. But the word gospel was a Roman term used to describe the good deeds of Caesar. So for Mark to be using the word gospel of God 
and he's talking about somebody other than Caesar. <laughs> this is a politically subversive sort of, this is claim, hey, the guy that's making all these claims about being God, not God. Now, this is like revolutionary stuff. This is, the word gospel was on placards all over the world proclaiming the good deeds of Caesar. He said, no, 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 this is the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That just means turn around, change your thinking. One of the things we need to do is to remove repentance as a shame-based thing. Repentance, if repentance is solely a shame-based thing, then if you've done nothing wrong, then you don't need to change anything. But actually, the best life is found in making repentance a lifestyle choice of always being open to new ways of thinking and new things that God is doing in, in, in our next generation, right? Or in, in our world, right? So he says, repent, change the way you're thinking, and believe in this gospel. Well, hang on, what's the gospel? The gospel is that the kingdom of God's at hand, right? So, so, this is something else. Now, now a couple of observations, because that's the literal. Mark wrote this. Jesus lived this. That's the literal. So let's explore some of the meanings of this, right? Next slide. But he said to them, this is in Luke chapter 4. But he said to them, I must preach the good news. Once again, that's the same word gospel. And that's the word that they used for Caesar propaganda around the imperial cult proving Caesar's God. So they're being very subversive here. Jesus is like being subtly... Mm, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Now watch this line. This is so confronting. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. For I was sent for this purpose. Now here's why that's confronting. Next slide. So Jesus did not say his primary purpose was to forgive sins. That's confronting. Now did he forgive sins? Yes. But did he say his primary purpose was to forgive sins? No. He said his primary purpose was to proclaim the establishment of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not say his primary purpose was to show ethical living. Although, did he do that? Yes, he showed us a good way, the best way to live in our world. Did he do that? Yes. Was that his primary purpose? No. His primary purpose was to proclaim the establishment of the kingdom of God. Jesus did say his primary purpose was to proclaim the kingdom of God so that people experience it here, now, today. Now, let's, let's explore this in the meaning and the eventual nature of this and then explore what it means and what our role is as leaders relationally and systemically. And I'm hoping this to be a real encouragement and sort of a challenge. Ne ne next slide. So Jesus talked about lots of things that people were already talking about. Like a th roughly a third of Jesus' teachings were teachings from Hillel and Shammai. But, 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 but in other words, people had heard it before. People had heard takes on divorce and sacrifice, and they'd heard takes on Sabbath or not Sabbath. So, so some of what Jesus was saying was sort of commonplace, and it was a, it was a good rabbi teaching uh, relevant thought. But this was brand new. This is not true of the phrase kingdom of God. That phrase is never used in the Old Testament, any rabbinic writing that is known, or in the intertestinal period. In other words, there is no known writing before Jesus where the phrase kingdom of God is used. Ever. What that means is, is Jesus is introducing a new, fresh idea. Which would have led to infinite questions. When somebody presents something that's never been heard before, the question is, what does this mean and how does this affect how we live our life. Next slide. So the word kingdom in Greek is the same word for empire. 
for the empire of God is coming. Now, where did these people live? Under the horrendous, oppressive regime of the Roman Empire? Yes. So the first century listeners would have heard a new rule is coming that is less oppressive and more abundant. The problem with this in Jesus' day is this would have required an overthrow of government. Now, here's the cool part. Is that for a guy claiming to be Messiah to say he's going to overthrow the government, fit, it fit the prophecies. Isaiah 61 says, and the government will be, a, yes. So he's like, oh, this is fitting the bill. But think about this. If you're a first century person and someone says, I've come for the purpose of establishing the empire of God. And in your world, that means they're going to have to overthrow the current government, which is oppressing you horrifically. What would be your natural question? When are you going to do that? <laughs> hey, can we mark our calendars? Because we want to see this. This is going to be awesome. Now, let's keep exploring this a bit. Next slide. So the phrase kingdom, so here's the, here's the problem. There's two primary views. If I ask someone today in a Western world, when I say kingdom of God, what do you think? I'm not talking about the doctrine. I'm talking about the imagination of how we picture it. The primary answer amongst Western people is, is, that, is that the phrase is about living in such a way here that guarantees us entrance to somewhere else. So, so Western people in general interpret or they imagine the kingdom of God to be heaven when we die, right? The other answer would be the phrase kingdom of God is about existing social structures on the earth and repairing it. So, so if I ask some people, what does it mean for the kingdom of God to come? Some would say the kingdom of God is being established in our city when injustice is confronted with justice and we confront oppression and we change social structures that are marginalizing a group of people unfairly and we bring justice and compassion and fair chances for every single person. You'd say, man, when that happens, the kingdom of God has, has been established. And, so, and another group would say, actually, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with that. The kingdom of God has to do with people believing certain things so they can go to heaven when they die, right? Now, wherever you are on that spectrum, I, I don't care. Because Jesus says both are actually wrong. Both are missing something. Now, watch what Jesus says about this. Next slide. So this is Matthew 13. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing without a parable. That's confronting as well. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. Now, here's where I'm going with this. I will utter what has been hidden since before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God in parables, it sounds new to them. But it's not new. It's something that had always been true. Let, let's, let's say it this way. Next slide. So when Jesus was describing the kingdom in parables, he wasn't describing a new thing, but an ancient hidden thing. In other words, Jesus did not come to inaugurate a new reality. He came to show you what God was always like. Right, like, like, like what Jesus did was not the inauguration of newness, even though it was new to them. It was the physical manifestation of the most ancient truth that was true before the foundation of the world. Like Jesus didn't die to fix a problem. Jesus died to obliterate the idea there ever was a problem. Like God loved you before the foundation of the world. Your salvation was given to you before the foundation of the world. His sacrificial work was completed before the foundation of the world. World, but you're just now believing it because you had to see it 
to believe it. So he showed you. This is like a beautiful, compelling story. And the same is true with the kingdom of God. He's like, this sounds new to you, but actually it was true before the foundation of the world. I'm just now, I've come for the purpose of making it come to light. And watch what he says. Next slide. This is Luke 17. And being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Exactly what we would do. Hey, you're going to take over Rome? <laughs> Can we mark our calendars for that? Because we'd love that. We'd actually love that. And we'd love to see it. Now watch what Jesus says. This is where it gets very confronting to me. And he answered them saying, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. In other words, if you can see it, it's not the kingdom of God. Yeah. Hey, did you, did you see it? Then that's not the kingdom of God. Here's why it's so important. Because we all have our favorite manifestation of the kingdom of God. And as soon as we say that's the kingdom, then we make an idol out of that manifestation. And anything that's not that is not kingdom. And we become an, we become an idol. In that sense, when, when, when we start saying the word God, we're just speaking of ourselves with a giant megaphone. Like, we, we, we like that. So, God, that's, what, that's the kingdom of God. Jesus said, no, no, no. If you can observe it, not the kingdom. Not the kingdom. The, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, there it is. <laughs> oh, here, no, there. That's not the kingdom. For behold, the kingdom of God is in you. Huh. So what does that mean? Let's explore the meaning of that. Next slide. So the Pharisees wanted to know the date of his overthrow of Rome so they could observe it. Jesus says this will not be observed in the outer world. For the kingdom of God is within you. Let's keep exploring that. Next slide. So it can't be observed with concrete experiences or statistics. If you can see it, not kingdom. If you can hear it, not kingdom. If you can observe it, not kingdom. It's not simply a new reordering of social structure. Although that might be a result of the kingdom. It's, it's sort of like this. If I take a rock and throw it as hard as I can into a lake and it goes... And I call the ripples the rock. No, the ripples are the result of the rock, but the rock is the rock. So if, if, if a group of people tackle injustice and bring justice, is that the kingdom of God? No, but it's the result of the kingdom of God residing in people and they're saying yes to that. When, when, you, when people have a, a, an authentic, magnanimous experience in worship, and you go, that's the kingdom of God. No, it's not. But that's the result of the kingdom of God where people are saying yes inside. It's that. It's, it's that. If you can see it, it's not the kingdom, but it might be the result of the kingdom. It might be the result of this inside. It's not something that primarily resides in the future or something that primarily resides on the outside. The kingdom of God that Jesus talked about is primarily an internal thing. So what does that mean? Next slide. This is very difficult to accept because we need to measure and prove things. What Jesus is saying is, is that we have to engage the kingdom with the correct faculty. That if you want to know what kingdom is, you can't look at it with the wrong faculty and expect to be right about it. Like, it can't be observed with intellect, although intellect's good. I'm all for that. It can't be observed with reason, although reason's good, I'm all for that. It can't be observed with measuring or observation, but actually the heart. So evidently the kingdom Jesus talked about was the kingdom was an inward reality with an outward result. But the kingdom was inside. Now watch what he says about this, because they, they ask him to explain himself, as you would. Next slide. This is Matthew 13. 
So he put another parable before them. Because they're asking him, they're like, we don't understand what you're on about. Can you tell us another way? Here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven, that is interchangeable, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Now, in parabolic literature, a man's field is his heart. Think about the parable of the sower. The ground is the state of the heart. So here's what he says. He says, the kingdom of God is like when you take a small seed and you plant it in your heart. That's the kingdom of God. It's a small seed in your heart. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. This is where it gets odd, especially because we're here in a bit of a farming region. It becomes all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other words, this is what Jesus says. Here's the kingdom. The kingdom is planting a seed in your heart, and you don't even know it's there until it's overgrown your whole field, and birds are actually taking nests in your field. Now, if you're a farmer, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's, that's actually, it's annoying. <laughs> let, let, let's say this way. What's Jesus getting at here? He's talking to farmers about the kingdom of God being the part of their life that annoys them. That's weird. Check this out. Next slide. So the parable is about the nature of the kingdom in us. It can be annoying. Why? Because the nature of growth and change and repentance is uncomfortability. In other words, Jesus is like, if it's making you comfortable, it's not the kingdom. <laughs> nope. Hey, if you're comfortable with it, not kingdom. Nope. If you can observe it, not kingdom. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. In other words, in other words, actually, if the kingdom of God doesn't make you uncomfortable, it's idolatry because you already believe that you have arrived. That the kingdom of God is the nature of growth that makes us uncomfortable. It's the, I'll, say it, I'll say it very practically. If the last ten books you read, if you just closed them and went, amen, what are you doing? Like, if you can't read things that stretch you and move you and grow and make you a bit uncomfortable and wrestle, not kingdom. In other, words, in other words, we'll never really arrive at it, but the kingdom of God is that thing that makes us a bit uncomfortable so we can grow. It's, it's that. It, it answers the question, why? What, have, have you ever asked this question, why if it's already in there, do I not see it yet? <laughs> have you ever thought, man, it clearly says I have the victory. Why don't I have victory? It clearly says I have, I'm freedom from oppression, but why don't I have that? It's, the, the mustard seed answers the question, why? Because some things you don't even know are in there until they manifest themselves. Let, let's say it this way. The mustard seed is that small part of you that has always said yes to God, whether you can name it or not. And it's growing. It's growing. It's, it's that small part of you that you don't understand. It's in there. It's moving you slowly but surely. Let's say it this way. Jesus is saying in time and given the right heart condition, the kingdom, the kingdom in us grows. But it's in there all along. So when we see the results of it, we tend to call the results the kingdom, but the kingdom's actually the seed. The kingdom's actually that small part of it, that small yes, not the big yes. That, that's the kingdom, which leads me to this. As leaders in the church of Jesus Christ in this community, what's your role? Like when you, when you examine scripture and take it seriously and literal, and then you explore the meanings of it, and then you explore the eventual nature of it, like how should... But, th but then, you, then you want to communicate that. And in my case, I communicate it here. In your case, you might communicate it from stages, but you also might communicate it more often over coffee, over a meal. 
And what's your role in communicating the truth of God's word to somebody, whether it be relationally or corporately? What, what's our role? And I would say that our role is not to get the result we're looking for. Our role is to cultivate the ground that is conducive to cooperate with the seed, right? That's our role. Because if our role is to get the result, we will manipulate people to get the result we think we want. But if our role is simply to cultivate an environment conducive to where people keep saying small yeses, then that sets us free from manipulating them and it sets them free to journey in their own pace, right? And it's still establishing the kingdom. Maybe let's say it this way. Next slide. Here's what's frustrating. Jesus doesn't say how. <laughs> that's the thing. Like, come on, man. If that's your purpose is to establish the kingdom, where's the seven steps on how? No. No. He doesn't say how. Because I don't think you can establish the kingdom with seven steps. Because the kingdom is global. And there's too many differences too many, it's actually, actually, let's say it this way. Jesus gives us an image with the hope of invoking thirst and longing so we never quit cultivating it. That's the issue. The, your role as a leader is to make Jesus so compelling with no manipulation, no judgment, no shame, so that in the ground of their heart, at their pace, they can keep saying small yeses to God because no yes is too small. See, here's the problem with idolatrizing results. If we say, you haven't got to the kingdom till I see this, then in their small yes, we might go, that's not there yet. That's not there yet. But actually, the kingdom is being established every time someone says a small yes, whether you can see the results or not. And that comes with cultivating ground, not focusing on harvest. So what if we focused our leadership on cultivating environment, atmosphere, and ground instead of always looking for results? Maybe we say it this way. It's up to the soil to participate with the work of the gardener. <laughs> it's up to the soil to participate with the work of the gardener. Maybe our job is soil cultivators, not harvesters. Maybe what we're called to be in establishing the kingdom is we're called to be a people who make the environment, atmosphere, the spirit of Jesus so compelling that in people's hearts they can keep saying small yeses. Because once we, inf what's, once we infect the how... This thing just gets so compelling. Like, we don't ever want to be people focused entirely on the literal. Why? We, let's think about it this way, right? Let's say a humanist is debating a Christian on YouTube. And if you're the type of person that gives these people clicks, stop, right? You could see the YouTube thing. Christian destroys atheist in a debate. And then you click on it. And that's not what happened, Right? What happened was 20 minutes of boredom and a wasted life, right? And here's why that's so boring. Here's why. Let's say a humanist is debating a Christian. And the humanist is like, no! Christianity's based on fairy tales and myth. Humanism's the way to go for these seven reasons, right? And the Christian's like, no! Humanism's crap. Christianity's the only true way. For these seven reasons. Now, let's say that both of them were so compelling that they simultaneously converted the other. <laughs> like, the Christian's so compelling 
that the, human, the, the humanist is like, I'm a Christian now. But at the exact same millisecond, the humanist is so compelling that the Christian converts to humanism. So the Christian is now a humanist, and the humanist is now a Christian. So on the stage, they switch places. What's changed? Absolutely nothing. On the level of what, something's changed, but on the level of how, nothing. Because if the humanist is the same kind of Christian that he was a humanist, he'll end up on stages arguing boring stuff. And if the Christian is the same kind of humanist that he was a Christian, he's going to end up on a stage arguing boring stuff. And any debate that if both converted the other, nothing changes, is the definition of useless. <laughs> right? Like... And let's be honest, right? Let's just be honest. Somewhere walking the earth tonight is, I don't know where they are, but somewhere walking the earth tonight is the rightest person about God. Someone is. I'm talking about the person that God looks down from heaven and goes, I'm almost impressed. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, oh yeah, you've, you've almost got it. Yeah, that guy, that guy. Or girl. We're super inclusive in our hyperbolic jokes. Now, the person walking the earth who's the rightest about God, what percentage of God do they understand? I don't know. Maybe one one hundredth of one percent. And the rest of us are behind that. Do you see the futility of Christians on the internet? bickering about the one one thousandth of one percent that they might understand instead of getting about being awesome in our world and creating ground conducive for people to just keep saying small yeses as God journeys them as he's journeyed us, right? Let, let's say it this way. Ne next slide. So what do we do with this? What's the eventual nature of this? Well, I think we have to understand the difference between object desire and object cause. Like desire is two parts. And if you remove either part, you have meaninglessness. Object desire is, that, is, is what you want. So to be very elemental, when you're three, you want to eat all the chocolate. That's your object desire. Your mother is the object cause. Your mother's saying you can't eat all the chocolate, right? So, so your object desire is that which you want. Your object cause is that which stands in the way of what you want. Now... If you remove either part, you have a meaningless existence. Like, if you just get everything you want all the time, just like that, your life is boring. That would be horrendous. That would be hell. That's, by the way, how we stuffed heaven up. We told the world, hey, one day you'll get to die, and you'll go to a place where you get everything you want all the time with no process at all. How bad can you make heaven sound? That would be horrendous. Just getting everything you want all the time with no process, that's horrible. If you have object desire without object cause, you have a meaningless existence. That's what Solomon said. I got everything I wanted all the time and found my life meaningless. But if you have object cause without something you're shooting for, you have pointless suffering. Right? Here, here's the book of Ecclesiastes in one nutshell. S successful people successfully navigate the tension between depression and melancholy. Depression is wanting something you don't have. Melancholy is getting what you thought you wanted, only to realize that didn't do it either. Okay? So, here's the truth. The quality of everyone's life is found in the fullness of which we embrace the object cause. 
the process. Like, what's more fun, buying a house or shopping for one and dreaming about the possibilities? <laughs> yeah, shopping way more. Like, what's, what's, what's more fun, actually buying a car or test driving all of them? Yes. What's, what's more fun, getting to know your spouse or getting to the end of knowing them? Right? <laughs> right? Right? Like, like the, like the best marriages are not the ones who are like, we've been together 25 years, we understand everything about each other, there's nothing left to explore. No, no. The, the best marriages are the ones that are like, I've been with her 38 years, I still don't have a flipping clue what makes her tick, and I love it. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Right? We know, we know that this is true in every area of life, is to embrace, is to embrace the object cause. Right? We, we know that that's what's true. But when it comes to the kingdom, we act like we can't enjoy it until we see the result. Actually, what if we could enjoy the process by which we create a fertile ground and enjoy the process of people saying the small yeses along the way and relieve ourselves from the pressure, let God get all the results. We do the planting and the watering, but God gets the fruit. That's how Paul framed the whole thing, right? Um, have we lost hope because we can't observe it? Have we started convincing ourselves maybe God's not real because it's not looking like what I thought, right? Or let's say it this way. Have we developed a lifestyle of repentance? Or do we primarily see repentance as a shame-based activity? Like, well, what if we created a lifestyle of changing the way we think? Constantly growing with small yeses, small yeses, small yeses. I think tomorrow I might talk to you about the nature of the word yes. We'll have some fun with that. Next slide. In his kingdom, his cross... His resurrection, is it a doctrinal point? Or is it a fundamental way of seeing our world? Like, do we just believe in the cross and resurrection? Do we proclaim and announce our doctrine? But what about, could you imagine a world, what if we made a 60-day commitment to not tell people what we believe until they saw it and asked us? Wouldn't that be better? Like, what a world that would be. Could you imagine that? that we didn't announce before we demonstrated. <laughs> like, like, remember what Paul said? He said, when I came to Corinth, I did not come with wisdom or with preaching or even the testimony of God. Like, well, how did you start a church without wisdom, preaching, or the, word of, or, or the scriptures? He says, but my, but my preaching and my speaking was with a demonstration of the Spirit of God and power. Right? It was, he demonstrated before he announced. Maybe, maybe say it this way. Do we actually believe nothing is wasted? Like Paul said this, because of resurrection, if you did it for God, you can't waste your life. I love that. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, if you did it for God, you can't waste your life because of resurrection. In other words, when Paul looked at the literal resurrection, that one of the meanings he came to was if you're doing it for God, nothing's wasted. You can't waste it. You can't waste it. You can't waste it. If you're giving it a go for God. And here's what's so moving. Paul wrote that having never known if what he did worked. <laughs> right? Like, Paul died before the Gospels were written, before Christianity took off. Paul died horrendously under Nero before he knew if it worked. And he was still able to write, hey, if it works, it works. If it didn't, it didn't. I did it for God. It can't be wasted. Can't. Can't. Can't be wasted. Can't be wasted. Or are we tempted to walk away from the field just minutes before the mustard seed manifests? What if our role as leaders? So let's talk about this eventually from an individual perspective. Is your ground fertile? Are you, are, are you saying small yeses still, or have you shut down the conversation? From a corporate level, as leaders, like let's say you're the worship people. Your job is not to usher in the presence of God. 
It's not. The presence of God has been here since before the foundation of the world. Like, like you know, imagine that. Come on, let's, let's bring the presence of God. The poor worship leaders are like, where did it go? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what, if, what, if, what if the worship leader's job is not to usher the presence of God? but to get people to cancel the white noise of their week long enough to be conscious of what's always there, right? It's better. What if our preaching is not to tell people what to believe, but to create an environment for fertile hearts that keep saying small yeses along the way? What if our conversations across tables, what if we could feel like we won just because we had the conversation instead of having to see that? What if, what if we were just compelling each other to keep our heart fertile? That let the ground participate with the gardener because the mustard seed is at work. That mustard seed is the small part of us that is begging to say yes to God. That's what's going on. And it's in us. It's not something that you can see or hear. It's something that's residing in you. So, my brothers and sisters... May you be people who find all the joy in the world in embracing the cause. Enjoy the result, but embrace the cause. Enjoy the results, but always embrace the cause. As leaders in this great church, great city, Equippers is a great church all over this, all over this nation. Bay City is a great church in this community. Whatever church you came from, may we be people who focus on the quality and the fertility of the ground. Allow people to say small yeses and still embrace it because the object cause is what we're all about. All right, so tomorrow night, I can't wait to share a couple things with you. We're going to take a whole different issue. I've got a lot of arrows in my quiver. We're going to share a lot. Come on back tomorrow night. As always, I'll honor your time. We'll be done 8.15 or so, um, and, and then you'll be on your way out at 8.30. I can't wait to journey along this weekend with you. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Come on, let's put it together for Shane. Outstanding. That was just brilliant. Um, when I when I first picked up the church, uh, the, when I first picked up Bay City, I felt um, the Lord give me three three just three keys to, to build the church. One was it's about people; it's not about you, <laughs> and it's about environment. So always uh, work to create an environment, and then uh, growth will be an effect of the environment. So it's always been about creating an environment for people. We have to create an environment for God. And um, that, that was just outstanding, Shane. So next, uh, tomorrow night, uh, we're starting at 6 p.m., which is different from tonight. Tonight started at 7. So tomorrow night, we're going to be here at 6 p.m. And there is a kids' movie on for primary age school kids. Is that correct? They'd just be in there. Financial donation, 100 bucks each. <laughs> just whatever you can afford, it's no problem. Uh, also, Shane's got some material back there. I really encourage you to uh, go back and have a look and invest in what he's produced there. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. And uh, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. God bless you.